I invite you to turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 12. And I thought I'd open up by, by talking a little bit about really an emotion that is, um, I believe, is at the root of, of much of the conflict and challenges in this world and the personal challenges we face. The presence of, of shame in its many forms goes well beyond the scope of, of simply a, a challenging emotional struggle that we face. In his book, The Soul of Shame, by uh, Dr. Kurt Thompson writes, this phenomenon, speaking about shame, this phenomenon in the prim- or is the primary tool that evil leverages, out of which emerges everything that we would call So Thompson argues that shame is at the root of all other negative emotions and it eventually affects the way we think and behave. For instance, our own sense of inadequacy may lead us to become overly harsh and critical of others, sort of as a defense mechanism. So in order to kill sin, we must silence the voice of shame. And if all of this is true, then shame is not something we can simply get over. One sermon's not going to fix our thinking. We must learn to fight against the root causes of shame with the truth of God's word. But the task doesn't even end there. Shame thrives in secrecy. And so we must learn to bring it into the light. Uh, that, That requires a great deal of vulnerability on our part. Something we're terrified of doing because we're ashamed. Right? And so it leads us into this perpetual cycle of a sense of shame that leads to sin, that leads to secrecy, that leads to a sense of shame that we keep secret and we keep this cycle going as long as we can continue to live that way. Uh, Brene Brown says vulnerability is shame's kryptonite. And so we can begin to experience victory in our fight against shame by confessing our sin to one another, responding to that confession then with the gospel truth. Both professing the gospel truth to ourselves, preaching the gospel to ourselves, but also preaching it to others and allowing others to do the same for us. And so John is writing to the church at a time when they experienced, uh, were experiencing spiritual and physical attack. And oftentimes we focus only on the extent of that physical persecution. We think of the enemies of the church as being comprised of political powers and religious authorities that condemn Christianity. And maybe we think that we as Americans have been largely spared from Satan's fiercest attacks. Without minimizing the significance of physical persecution, I do think this passage raises our awareness of Satan's most common tactics, those of deceit and accusation. While we may not have enemies trying to physically harm us or rip us apart, Satan has attempted to deceive us with false teaching and with the fleeting pleasures of sin. All of us can relate to the debilitating effects of shame that stem from true and false accusations against us. And so the first readers 
face these same challenges. And this is something that is relevant for us as well. All of Revelation chapter 12 depicts this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This ongoing conflict where the characters uh, were introduced in, chap- in, in the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 through 6. Uh, the woman represents the universal church, enduring prolonged labor pains until this child of promise was born. And then the dragon is this ancient serpent, as defined in verse 9, who seeks every opportunity to thwart the redemptive purposes of God. So according to God's sovereign plan, the Christ child was born and his humiliation and exaltation are summarized in that passage as simply his birth and then his ascension. The birth, which was the beginning of his humiliation, his entering into the flesh uh, of this world, this sinful fallen world, he enters into it, he becomes like us. And then he suffers throughout his life. He's a man of sorrows, but he lives this perfect life in our place. He dies upon the cross. He takes the shame upon himself and he dies in our place. Right. That's his humiliation. And then he is buried and he is in the grave for three days. But then he rises again. He ascends to the right hand of the throne of God and he will return once again. That's that's all exemplifying his exaltation. So his humiliation and exaltation are exemplified in this passage just by his birth and ascension. The ascension of Christ then marked the beginning of his heavenly reign, which will culminate in his eternal reign with his saints in the new heavens and new earth that will be described at the end of the book. So that's the backstory of history that continues throughout the rest of this chapter. And while verses 1 through 6 describe the spiritual warfare behind the scenes of the earthly events of, of Christ's birth and ascension, this passage describes the heavenly combat that's taking place at the same time. And so before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you once again for this important truth that we need to heed. Lord, this truth that we need to understand and not just understand it with our minds, but believe it with our hearts. Lord, stir up in us a grateful response to the gospel. Cause us to be moved by this text. Lord, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, even as we listen that we would be transformed even as we're hearing the truth proclaimed. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb 
and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Amen. This is God's holy word. So the first thing we'll look at is we're just going to see two sections. This passage, we're going to look at verses 7 through 9. And then we'll look at verses 10 through 12. The first section, verses 7 through 9, is the defeat of Satan. The defeat of Satan. Christ's victory over Satan was summarized by reference to his humiliation and exaltation, as I've already described in verse 5. And this results then in the defeat of Satan that's also portrayed in this passage, verses 8 through 9. We begin with the depiction of angelic warfare between Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels. The book of Daniel portrays Michael assisting the Son of Man in visions of latter-day events. You could look at Daniel chapter 10, verse 13 and 29 as well as Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. It describes the Son of Man as receiving assistance from Michael. And so Michael has this role uh, as an assistant to the Savior, as an assistant to the Son of Man. Ancient Jewish literature often portrayed him as, portrayed Michael as their protector. And in Revelation, Michael's here connected to Christ and supports his redemptive work. Right? So whereas the cross... And the resurrection depicts Satan's defeat on earth. Michael and his angels defeat Satan in heaven. And these victories, they occurred at the same time in different contexts. And so prior to Christ's ascension, Satan had access to the throne of God. Satan came before God in the book of Job, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, and again in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Satan comes before God and he proposes to bring hardship upon Job, to bring hardship into his life. And it's, it's relentless hardship. But his, his motivation in doing that was to say, God, Job only loves you. He only worships you because you've been good to him, because you're kind. But if he experiences hardship, he'll curse you to your face. That was, that was Satan's plan. And so, God allows hardship to come into Job's life. And of course, we know Job responds initially by giving praise to God. Right? The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, you also have a similar situation in Zechariah. Satan stands in the heavenly courtroom and he brings accusations against Joshua, the high priest, who stands there with filthy garments around him. It's as if the the accusations are true. These are true things about Joshua. He is standing in filth that doesn't belong in heaven. And so Satan's saying, this man doesn't belong here. He's not worthy. Kick him out. And God instead rebukes Satan. And he commands the, the robe, the filthy robe to be removed from Joshua and for him to be clothed in a, a white robe. Right? The, the pure robe of holiness. God was making him worthy. So, 
you have those two examples, very clearly examples of Satan having access. But here, the dragon is defeated, and in verse 8 it says, um, he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. For Satan and his angels, they were kicked out. And so his access to bring accusations before God was immediately revoked. He, is, he and his angels were thrown down to earth in verse 9. So the cross, it delivered us from this present evil age. According to Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus appeared in order to destroy the works of the devil. His appearing is a reference to his first coming. Jesus appeared in order to destroy the works of the devil. That's 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Hebrews 2.14 says that through his own death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So this brought deliverance to those who were enslaved to sin. And Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The only way he can do that is if is if the, the ruler of the kingdom of darkness has been defeated. And so this is incredible news, is it not? We should be rejoicing over this, but our challenge is believing it to be true. All right, we might grasp the gospel with our minds, but we struggle to believe it on a daily basis. To illustrate, consider last week's sermon. Right, I said that the woman in labor represents the church, and the illustration of her in, in labor, her being pregnant, suggests that God sees us as beautiful and as ones who need to be protected, right? As a, a new father who would protect his bride. And then also as a beautiful, glorious woman who's clothed in the sun, who stands on the moon, who's got a crown of stars around her head. There's this beauty and protection. And that's God's posture towards the church. But we're uncomfortable with those kind of compliments, right? We don't know how to respond to that. So we look down to the ground when someone says you're beautiful. Right? We, and that itself, that act of looking down reveals our shame, the shame that we feel. We tell ourselves that we don't deserve that kind of affection. And so we hear it, but then we quickly move on. We, we don't want to sit there and be present for too long in that moment. We cannot appreciate that blessing. And that's my own instinct. Right? I, I don't know what to say, so I moved on. It's like, here's, here's what this is telling us. And so let's go on to the next verse. But this morning, I want to slow down. I want us to reflect upon the reality of God's posture towards us, right, as his people, as his glorious bride. Most of us view God's compliments uh, with a skewed glance. Right? We, instead of, there's uh, the song, um, God Moves in Mysterious Way, written by William Cooper, and instead of Reading the line, behind the frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Right, we hear that. We, we say, because of our circumstances, it's, it's difficult and it's dark. 
but God we know is smiling. We flip that. We reverse it. We say behind a smiling face, he hides a frowning providence. Right? Like he's saying good things to us, but he doesn't really mean it. We know there's something else that he's hiding. He's describing us as glorious and beautiful, but we're looking for the flaw. It's got to be there. Right? There's something really dark and sinister about this image and illustration, and we're just waiting for that to be shown. That's what we're really trusting, is that image and illustration that we've created, not the one that God is declaring us to be. And so Satan's lies have taken root. Right? Satan's accusations have no place in heaven, but we often make room for them in our souls. And we listen to them. Does Satan's condemnation drown out the truth of Christ's victory? Christ declares, I have redeemed you, my beloved. You've been set apart. You've been justified, sanctified. You'll be glorified. But we hear the enemy say, you'll never be good enough. You don't belong here. You're not worthy. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, we are praying for the defeat of sin, for the defeat of Satan. In terms of our present experience, your kingdom come even now. We want the grip of sin to be more and more weakened. We want the desires of our heart to be more and more strengthened and aligned with the will of God for our lives. But if the work has already been accomplished, if Satan has already been defeated, then it truly is a matter of faith. In order to walk in the light, we must believe that Jesus has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness. That the accusations have no more authority over us. And so Satan's defeat means that he can no longer accuse the brethren. All of his accusations have been answered by Christ's death on the cross. And so when Satan points out your sin, you point to the blood of the Lamb. That covers your sin perfectly and has made you worthy. And so the defeat of Satan implies the triumph of the saints. And that is what is being declared in verses 10 through 12, the loud voice proclaims that the accuser has been thrown down. Salvation has come to the covenant community. And the accuser has, was conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And so verse 11 places the climax of this heavenly defeat of Satan at the cross. But it says it's the blood of the Lamb that has conquered. And the word of the testimony of the saints who proclaim that gospel to themselves and others. Not only is the event of Christ's crucifixion significant in the defeat of Satan, but the testimony of the disciples is considered to be part of that victory. At least in our experience of that victory, right? So when Jesus said that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven in Luke chapter 10, he was speaking to the 70 disciples who had just returned from successfully evangelizing, from proclaiming the gospel and casting out demons. And Jesus says, I have given them authority over unclean spirits so that the proclamation of the gospel would not be hindered. 
And as Christ was lifted up on the cross, Satan was thrown down from heaven. That's described in John chapter 12, verses 31 to 32. So now the accuser has been removed. Now that he's kicked out of heaven, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as Paul tells us in Romans 8. So as Martin Luther stated in the hymn we just sang, Satan knows that his doom is sure. He's been defeated. He's simply awaiting for the final culmination of his doom. And the reality of Satan's defeat leads to the rejoicing in heaven. But then in verse 12, it speaks of a woe as well to those who are on earth. And next week we'll see from verses 13 through 17 that the devil's fury is directed towards everyone on earth. This woe is not limited to unbelievers, but believers should not fear the limited power of their defeated foe. So Satan is like a dying cockroach, right? He's, he's been defeated, but he's very much active and kicking and screaming and screeching accusations at us. But all his kicking and screaming get him no closer to his goal. He cannot do any ultimate harm to God's covenant people. And he's, he is just as active in declaring his accusations, but the judge has tuned out his frequency. Our problem, again, is that we still have a tendency to tune in so that we hear those accusations loud and clear. And since Christ already bore the wrath of God on behalf of those who believe in him, there is no further punishment that can fall upon believers. Every attempt of Satan to condemn you has already been answered by Christ's death. And so believers always have a way of escape. We always have a way of escape from Satan's temptations. We have the example of Christ who was tempted in, in every respect as we are. And yet he remained without sin. And so as we submit ourselves to God and we resist the devil, he flees from us. Those who conquer will be rewarded with the enjoyment of the new heavens and new earth. That's, that's the promise that we have. That's the promise that awaits. That's the promise that was given to six of the seven churches that received letters in chapters 2 and 3 of this book. And so what are the practical implications of Satan's defeat? Well, I've already said it. If the accuser has been thrown out of heaven, then his accusations have no authority. My filthy garments have been removed and I have received a robe of righteousness that will never be stained. All past, present, and future sins in a believer's life have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And so if the blood of Christ has cleansed us from our sin, then God will no longer entertain any accusations Satan might lodge against one of his elect. And therefore, any debilitating shame we might experience as believers has absolutely no warrant. And I'm not, I'm not talking about experiencing a growing grief and hatred for our sin. That is good and necessary and, and an aspect of repentance. And that, too, is a gracious gift from God. I'm talking about those whose guilt 
quickly turns into condemnation. I'm talking about those who have experienced the forgiveness of Christ but are unable to forgive themselves. And they live in isolating shame of their past or even present sins. And so you need to know that you have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb, that the word of your testimony is one of freedom in Christ. We are no longer enslaved to sin. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 teaches us that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the one who defeated sin on our behalf despised the shame on our behalf as well. And so when Satan points out your sin, point to the blood of the Lamb. Since Satan has been defeated, the saints have become triumphant. The absence of accusations in heaven means that the dragon has been declawed. And his power has been severely limited by the blood of the Lamb. So let us sing in response with great confidence the words of Charity Lee Lee's Bancroft. He says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul was counted free, for God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder. And although we know this truth, we've heard this gospel truth, Lord, that it's so easy for us to, to not believe it, to live as if it's not true, to not receive the blessings or not to, to entertain those blessings as you've given them to us in your word. Or to take them lightly. To be dismissive about them. But Lord, to be dismissive about the, the blessing is to entertain the accusations of the enemy. And Lord, we know that you have already defeated him. Help us to live with that in mind. Help us to live recognizing that our accuser has been silenced. That he has no warrant in his claims over us. Lord, help us to live as the sons and daughters of the King. Help us to listen to him and to hear his rejoicing over us, even as we rejoice in him, even now. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.